Hey guys, what's up? Craig from Bass Lessons Melbourne here. It's been um, a long time between drinks, as they say. Uh, I think the last episode I posted was just December 24th, just before Christmas. Um, a lot's happened <laughs> since then. Uh, I moved house, um, which is always a time-consuming, stressful process. Um, and obviously everything <coughs> COVID-related in between. Um, and this interview with uh, Steve Jenkins was actually recorded nearly a year ago, so last August 2020, which was the kind of run-up to the presidential election. Um, uh, it was also, I think, um, pretty close to the Black Lives Matter movement that was happening. Um, and obviously... Uh, middle of the COVID pandemic over there and it it's just it sat in my hard drive for a long time and I can't really say why uh, uh, one one reason is that um, I just kind of lost motivation for doing these um, just being honest like it's just it's not the same doing things virtually via Zoom um, not to take anything away from from Steve we had a great hang it was a really great chat um but you know, there's something about that face-to-face -face interaction and actually hanging out with somebody in real life that, I don't know, spurs me on a little bit more. But we're here. Um, I'm really glad to finally get this episode out there because Steve is a phenomenal bass player. Um, if you've never heard him, definitely go on YouTube um, and look him up. He's uh, he's also on some Scots Bass Lessons things. He's got his own True Fire courses. Uh, he's got a, uh, an amazing band. Um, Steve Jenkins and the Quaxel Flutter, which I'm not sure if that's still happening or not, but he's released some amazing albums under that moniker. Um, so yeah, um, my apologies for for not putting these out, but you know, um, you can get your money back if you want. <laughs> um, before we go on, I should say thanks to FBase, who are still generously sponsoring this podcast, um, who've been handcrafting guitars and basses for over 40 years creating um, vintage and contemporary designs so if you're in the market for a new instrument I highly recommend going and checking out FBase over at www.fbase.com shout out to Marcel and George um, the music you're hearing at the moment is a track called Sleep is Useless from um, my band Pickpocket's latest album called Refraction which uh, you can find on Bandcamp, Spotify, and whatever. Um, but back to talking about Steve. Um, yeah, we we touched on a lot of things. We touched on a little bit of politics, a little bit of his uh, his journey as a player. Um, tone. Uh, we just kind of uh, the interview actually just kind of kicks in. Um, I just kind of we were just chatting, and I press record, and so yeah, the interview doesn't really have a proper introduction so to speak but here it is um it's a long one it's just over two hours uh the audio quality isn't great another thing about the online thing but hopefully um you can uh, you can get enough from it that it's still enjoyable so I, i'd love to say a big thanks to steve for um agreeing to to chat with me um i really respect him his playing his uh his ethos um so i hope you get something from it um, and in the meantime, stay safe, um, leave a review, share this uh, podcast around, let me know what you think. You can send me an email, info at basslessonsmelbourne.com 
and I'll see you guys next time. Here's Steve Jenkins. Like I gotta get a a mic and like a boom arm because you know we're evolving, right? So yeah, so like that's that's something I'm I'm sort of researching now, um, just because like you know I, I see it being a more useful thing, but pre-pandemic, you know, like this was as much as I was doing. So yeah, it actually works really well as like a like there's like a built-in mic that sounds pretty good. So yeah, it does. Yeah, are you are you running um Mac? Yeah, yep. Yeah, the Apogee stuff's pretty good as far as I know. Yeah, I just got a new interface, but I haven't set everything up yet. So I I made the move to Universal Audio. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, no man, I've been using this one for like a few years, so it's been great. You know, you just plug bass straight in. Uh, sometimes I'll use a preamp beforehand, you know, so I have like the, there's a thing that Carrie Nordstrand built called the star lifter and oh, yeah. um, that thing's really good. I really like that. I, then there's like the tone hammer, which I've had for years. That's a really good thing. Have you ever um, used uh, Noble? Not yet. I, I want to check it out. I know all the cool kids <laughs> use the Noble, but I also know people that don't. I think I'd like to just try one and see what what it does for what I'm into yeah. doing. But I think I think for for most people who play bass, like even if your style is different or you like a variety of tones, like there's a fundamental thing people like to hear in their sound. And so I think that's what's probably people that's probably why people like the noble because well from what i've heard that's the thing like it's you know what i mean like there's there's a universal approach to tone that i think that's that's what people are responding to so sure. unless you're bunny burnell <laughs> yeah yeah i don't i don't really know <laughs> yeah i don't know but, but i think even for that style you know like having having like some of that up front i mean yeah. it can only help you know i don't know but yeah, there's a lot of good stuff out there. You know, it's it's hard to uh I don't have you know, like I have a I have my thing pretty dialed in, but now that I've got this new ecosystem of stuff with these uh UAD plugins and stuff mm-hmm. like that, I mean, I don't know. It's like I've always been really interested in production. And I think because of home uh studio stuff being more um just it, it's gotten more accessible over the years. Like, you know, I've, I've had a setup for almost 20 years, you know? And I think now that it's just such a commonplace thing, I, I think, you know, it's just something that is a natural evolution for a lot of us as bass players and being in a world now, or which we've been in, you know, for a long time where you can do a lot of stuff from home, you know, yeah. like for, for people that are making albums that aren't, nearby you know like i i love doing that kind of stuff and you know like i always end up saying it's only bass <laughs> right yeah 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 no like, like my friend uh i don't know if you know this bass player matt rubano he's like one of my best friends and he he was in this band called taking back sunday um but matt's a really versatile bass player like he he played on lauren hill's record and stuff but like he was tell he was talking to somebody about like why he chose bass and and Matt's a real consummate bass player. So the person said, it's like, you took the easiest instrument and made it 
the hardest thing ever. <laughs> and I feel, <laughs> I feel like sometimes that's the, that's the weird pursuit, you know, um, even yeah. though well, it's like, you know, bass is one of those things that we spend so much time when we're practicing or whatever at home, like we spend so much time hearing it in isolation when it it's kind of designed to be heard in context. So we make right. a lot of choices in terms of maybe what we're playing and tonal choices based on that isolation. And then you start to record or you, you go and rehearse with your band and you're like, mm, this isn't quite happening. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. It's, it's weird. I think, a lot of us, I know for me, a lot of my tonal ideas were informed from being a live musician, you know? So there was a phase where I was playing, like my main bass was a modulus for a while, you know? And those are really clear instruments. But if you're playing in a room that's not really the most bass guitar friendly room, like I don't mean in terms of the frequency bass, but, you know, like something will get lost between where the band is set up and where the very back of the room is like, you know, your notes don't have the definition that they sound like they have when you're on stage. The modulus is like a very, um, it's a very extreme reaction to that kind of, uh, that kind of thing, you know, and it, it speaks in a way that's very clear, but when you take that out of that context and you put it in an isolated recording thing, it's like, Oh wait, there's all this, it's all this stuff now that like yeah, I don't it, hear when I'm playing like, live, but yeah, it's like a like a, a laser beam for live, but you don't yeah. really want that in the studio or Yeah. I think there's a happy medium with that stuff. Like I really like um I don't know, man. Like I like brighter sounds. But and I think you can you can make a case for it depending on like what you're gonna do. If you're gonna put overdrive on the sound, if you're gonna put distortion on it and it sort of uses that to help the um overtones speak a little bit more but um yeah i think there's some things like that definitely i think some of those things make make recordings easier to manage because if you have something that has like a lot of stuff you can easily cut all that in the production process yeah exactly if, it, if it's not if you know if you have your tone rolled all the way off you can't really mm -hmm. add it afterwards yeah. but you can kind of you can kind of re replicate it in the mix yeah Exactly. Like, it's like when you hear some of those um, isolated bass track recordings. Mm -hmm. You know, um, one that kind of springs to mind um, is um, some of the bass tracks for like Rush. Yeah. When you hear that bass, you're like, it just sounds so bizarre. Like, it's not really, it, it, not really a, a natural choice you'd maybe make but then when you hear it in the context of everything else it's just been sculpted to perfectly fill that spectrum yeah i you know i love his sound and i think that's where i started to understand that like having levels of overdrive and compression even if you don't really notice the overdrive to the point when you're listening to it you know there's like so many other sounds that are kind of going along with the bass guitar sound so like on a song like Tom Sawyer, you've got like the Moog Taurus pedals, right? Like you've got that giant droning E and then, you know, the bass guitar doesn't sound very saturated next to that. But when you take it out of the mix and you just listen, it's like, wow, there's, there's some stuff happening with, with his sound that, uh, 
that definitely works. But yeah. I don't know. I feel like we're in the golden age of distortion for bass, you know? I mean, yeah, d- dark glass can have happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like I, I just did a couple recordings where I used, I used my dark glass stuff, and uh, it it really, even in a subtle way, it just really added the right amount of everything. It's that that uh, what do you call it, man? Um, the um, kind of distortion is it? Sorry, man. It's like the um, end of the day, uh, like the harmonic distortion. Harmonic distortion, multi-band, multi-band distortion, where, you know, you're taking certain frequencies and you're distorting those, but it's keeping the low in there, you know? Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a cool sound, you know? Is that the, um, is that the microtube, the microtubes, uh, the, B, the B7K? Yeah, I have the X7, and X7. then I have, I have the B3K. Doug actually gave that to me at a NAMM show. Like in 2015, he just handed it to me. He's like, here, man, this is for you. I'm like, oh, shit. Um, And it's one of the older, it's kind of old now. Like they kind of change their designs every couple years or they'll just kind of subtly do a refresh. So this one has like slightly different. It's not as like sci-fi looking. The logo is a little bit more homegrown, but it's, yeah, I still use that pedal to this day. I I love how, how simple it is. Yeah, um, it seems like it seems like every other month there's like a new variation of the dark glass pedal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and they're and they're plug-in the stuff they do with plugins like the parallax, the thing they do with neural DSP. Yeah, and then um, even the stuff they do um, with they had like versions of the B uh, B7K and then like the microtubes. Um, before uh, Parallax came out, it's really good, and I don't, I don't really have a deal with them, so I'm just you know, like I bought my X7 yep. um, before I went out on the road, and and so you know I love to work with them, but no, it's like an unsponsored opinion. Like their their stuff's like, except for that one pedal that Doug gave me, like everything else. Yeah, right. Know, it's um, it's I, quite I, good. A friend of mine, um, Pat Farrell, bass player down here in Brisbane, he um, he just got his hands on one of the Tonehammer preamps and that has a, an overdrive circuit in it as well is that right yeah mm-hmm. and he's, he's he's pretty pretty excited about that sound yeah that's a really good i mean that's a really good pedal uh preamp thing mm. uh, like they had an amp for a while called the ag500 and i think that saturation circuit was based on that right but right. The thing that I didn't personally like about the AG500, and I've, I've been with those guys since 2005, like that's the amp company I use. They didn't have a real, like the AG500 didn't have a really strong, um, didn't have a really strong uh, mid thing happening. And I feel like the pedal, the tone hammer pedal kind of fixed that. And so when they started to make the tone hammer amps, that's, yeah. that's why I kind of went that direction. Like I, I dug the AG500, but I like the tone hammer sound more because they dealt more with the low mids and stuff like that. Yeah, I used to have the AG500 SC, so just a single channel without the. Okay, yeah, I had the one with the distortion. Yeah, and um, it was cool. It was good. I just that was my one gripe. It's like I can't get this. I can't get that. Like it's very clear. It's not. There's yeah. not enough grit to it. Um, yeah, yeah. That's one of the things that I've kind of noticed about a lot of your like what you were saying, like your sound is generally colored. 
I would say. Would that, would that be a fair call? Yeah, I, I would say um, to a certain extent, it definitely is. Um, at the very least now, like with, with the stuff that I record, I mean, I'll put a little bit of compression in there. Um, and so that helps with certain things, but, but like, uh, yeah, if there's any overdrive or anything like that's, that's a big part of it. I don't know. I mean, like some of the stuff is pretty, pretty clean too. It's just, I mean, I tend to, um, I used to be a little bit more into rolling the tone further off, but now I kind of put it in the center and I found that like, if I'm playing against something that seems to be the right amount. Um, I don't know. Cause like you use more like Fender style basses too, right? Like I know you got like an F bass and stuff like that, but like, yeah. you know, that kind of sensibility where you're not, you're not using more preamp than you need to, you know, it's like, you're almost, I, I try to approach it from, making it making it sound good before there's any real uh use of preamp i think yeah. for me the pickups by themselves as passive pickups they have to sound really good to my ears that way and then then you know like it's easier to put in like overdrive distortion um sometimes i'll get clever with some of like the stuff i've posted on um instagram for example like sometimes i'll double tracks because Gotcha. It's you're I'm mixing for someone who's waiting in line looking at their phone. So like that's the thing. Like there's <laughs> I wouldn't mix like if I was making a record, which yeah. I'm sort of working on a new one now, but like if if I was mixing for a record, it wouldn't be the same as like, oh, this is gonna be on Instagram. So it's, there's it's that. Such, a, such an interesting you know, situation that we're in where those are some of the artistic choices that we need to be make, you know, like will this sound good on an iPhone speaker? Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I think, I think it's taken people a long time to come around to that, but I also think it's like, well, here we are, you know, like they're so they're like, I think I started to take, social media really seriously um i mean maybe not as seriously as some people because some people really jumped in and kind of built their business around their social media for me like i think i was doing a lot of live stuff so it didn't really occur to me to um spend a disproportionate amount of, a disproportionate amount of time on social media like it was more like okay well, i'm playing gigs and i'm meeting people and I'm out in the world. So that's helping my cause. But in the current state of the world that we're in, um, and even before this, I mean, I, I was getting a decent number of calls for studio sessions. I got gigs from social media and like it sort of drives for lack of a better term, it drives my business, man. So it's like, um, I think just trying to figure out like, how to keep your posts sounding a certain way or whatever. That's, it is a weird consideration. And it's also not, that's not really how anyone would mix a record, you know? Yeah. But if you're trying to get someone's attention and just what's it sound like, they're just going to have their phone on the table and they're watching it, then I think it's okay. Yeah. You know? I think one of the things that I've found is that I actually need to do, roll off quite a lot of bottom end when I'm, yeah 
when I'm recording for for Instagram because the the iPhone speaker just craps out. It's just just gets right. story. So you can actually you don't really need anything below below like a hundred hertz. Yeah. To to come through, and then you can then you can get it louder, which is always important. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. Yeah, it, it's a weird it's a weird thing, man. I would imagine there's there's probably like presets that people can they can like kind of see what it would sound like on the phone, but I always test it yeah. just to hear what it's going to actually sound like. Because um, even if not just for like the bass, like there's stuff, I program a lot of the drums that I end up playing along with. So sometimes I want certain things to, to be a little bit more audible. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's all, it's all a weird consideration, you know? And I definitely think, a lot of the stuff that I like to hear from bass, like if, you know, cause like I play a lot of five string bass. So, uh, I mean, I play a decent amount of four, but if I'm playing five and I'm playing some low B stuff, like you're not going to hear that if your phone is just, you're going to, you have to put on headphones and then you can yeah. hear it. But I think just because of the way it moves air and the size of those speakers, like you're not, you're not really going to hear it yeah. unless you have he- headphones on. Just got to, got to wind that tone control open so you can hear the clickety clack. Of that little yeah. sharp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know that social media was intended to be an audiophile experience, but I still think it matters. Because I've noticed like I used to just I would record stuff on my phone and I don't know. I mean the other thing, the other thing that it's gotten me to do though is like I realized, wow, I need to like shed some technique because I'm, I'm a little bit sloppy, like the room can hide some stuff. So, yeah, right. you know, I mean, I, I always practice and work on some maintenance things, but there, I remember I heard myself, like I recorded something into my, uh, into logic and I was like, Hmm, that's like not as clean as our, it sounds in the room, you know? So interesting. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, like the, the whole social media thing is like, if you're going to, if you're going to do it, you may as well do it right. Right. You know, because you, you if you're if you half-ass it, you know you run the risk of damaging your reputation to some extent. Yeah. You know, and the the bar is so so high. Like people, the the production value of of a lot of stuff out there is is so high. So and people are really used to super high quality production for for free, like as disposable, you know, entertainment. It's like. Yeah, the amount of effort that can go into a, a one-minute post can be crazy. Right. I think the audio is the one place people aren't as forgiving. Like, I don't think anybody's expecting like, like a J.J. Abrams style <laughs> like film with lens flares and stuff. But, but I think audio is the one time people can really. That's not that hard to do, man. Especially for like a minute. You know, it's like. Yeah. Um. I mean, I think I, I say that now as like sort of having gone through some some examples where I've worked on things and learned how to be more economical with the way I do it. Um, yeah. How, how, like, how do you, how do you, I mean, that's one thing that maybe a lot of people, especially, you know, I've been doing a, a bunch of like ISO jam videos and stuff and right. people was like, how do you record for, you know, like, so how, what's your setup or progress for, um, recording a, an Instagram clip? Um, okay. So one thing that I got in the beginning of the pandemic was I bought one of those iRig streams and okay. 
what that is, is it's a device that IK Multimedia makes. And what it lets you do is you can route audio from, so I can pull up Logic and I can play along. There's like pretty much all the videos I do that sound pretty good. Like if I haven't, like, well, I'll talk about the second method after this, but essentially what this does is like, I'll plug my bass into Logic. If I'm playing with anything like, like a track or something, that's in there too. So literally all it's doing is I'm running the audio from my interface into the iRig stream. Then the iRig stream is plugged into my phone, which is an iPhone. Then I just open the camera app and put it on video. And I would set up that camera to film however I would want to film, you know? Um, so just so the, the iRig Pro, it's like got two connections, one for your laptop and one for your phone? Um, yeah, let me see if I can... Let me see if I can grab it. One second. Yep. Okay. Um, so you have, it's this device. Um, you run the RCA cables. Uh, it's like the device runs into here via RCA cables. And then there's a cable that... Uh, we have it in front of me. You plug this into the um, into the iRig, and then this is a lightning cable. Gotcha. So, so you're you're taking like the one of the outputs of your interface, mm -hmm. your computer interface, the the actual audio output of yeah. that into the iRig. Gotcha. Yeah. And so, if I wanted to like, and I could use, it's basically you're employing the camera, but you're using the audio from the external source. Yeah. So if I wanted to. Um, like if I wanted to stream, like if I wanted to play live, I could do it that way, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But the way I ended up doing it was like, I just use it to make better sounding videos and it saves me the step of having to sync audio and video. Absolutely. That's the second way I was going to, that's the second way I, I work on it. So if I want to do something that's longer than a minute, or even if it's a minute and I want it to just be, you know, I want it to maybe be different or have like different shots. Mm -hmm. um, like the, I use Final Cut and I'll use the audio. That's, that's a little of right there, Final Cut Pro. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, so then, then what happens is, you know, you just, the, the, real, the real trick that people have to remember with all that is like, so let's say like I got my phone and let's say like a second camera. Um, and then there's another thing you can do, which I don't feel very critical of this, but like, it's just for production value. Like you can always mine your stuff if you need an extra angle, like yeah. no one's really going to be that mad. Like, but, but like, essentially the thing is, is like the, the audio is coming from like the DAW. So you record it. And if you're capture, capturing video as you record it, you just make sure that you can sync the audio. So you clap, I do that thing where you clap. And that way, when you can see all the audio files from the camera, you can, you can basically line them up with the transient. There's automatic ways to do it in Final Cut, but at least just to see like what it looks like. And then depending on like what, you know, if I leave my monitors on and I want to listen to what I'm doing, like if I don't want to do it through headphones, mm -hmm. sometimes I'll mix a little bit of that in to like the direct audio just so it has some stuff. But um, it's not, 
inherently that complicated. It feels silly to put that kind of production into like a minute long thing, but I think sometimes it pays off, man. Or sometimes it's just, it's cool to do. Like I did something where I just took, um, I took like a drum thing that Matt Halpern played and then I made a bass track to it and I did all that in Final Cut, you know? Yeah. Um, well, I think a lot, you know, um, a lot of the time people are kind of like the set up to record or whatever as part of their practice. Like I was kind of set up to, I can just plug in and be ready to record to Logic and stuff like that. So then the next step of videoing it it's not like you're saying it's not too big of a deal. One thing right. that I've actually discovered is that do you know Photo Booth? The yes. that takes the audio from your computer. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> the other day I was just like so that's generally what I do is I'll you know if I, even if I'm playing along to like a YouTube video um it'll record whatever your system is set to oh that's um, pretty cool so if you're it if might you're, uh, it might be because i'm i've got an rme interface that has okay. like a you can internally route your system audio okay so like you can i can have you know my um like my my daw output actually go to another input and um yeah and photo booth seems to pick that up wow um alternatively you could always just you know play a track from your phone into your interface and yeah so that's always worth a shot as well as see see if your interface will actually see if photo booth or whatever your internal webcam thing is um that might capture your your audio that's happening that's pretty cool yeah i haven't really tried i haven't really tried that um so what's the shot? You know, it might make life. And then I just, you know, then I just airdrop that video to my phone. Oh, okay. Yeah, airdrop is the best, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's made it so like there's such a streamlined process to all this stuff now that it seems probably a little bit daunting in the beginning, but with practice, I mean, I found you know it can keep your workflow pretty, pretty, uh, pretty easy. I mean, there's other stuff too. Like, uh, I had a gig. I mean, remember gigs? I had a gig like <laughs> last. <laughs> I had a gig last year where I had to. Um, yeah, I didn't want to have any paper because I I didn't really want anything blowing around, and uh, I don't. I didn't want to necessarily have to read a ton of stuff either. So I wrote like truncated notes on like like lead sheets style stuff. And then I used my phone to scan it in because you can use your phone to scan it in like with, with Mac now. It's really cool. And then I just sent it. There's a, um, I think the app's called Gigbook. I like sent it to that and I was able to just put it right in my iPad and boom, that was it. So, I mean, I don't know, man, there's a lot. It's, it's funny how easy some of that stuff is. Yeah, there's, like, there's definitely things out there to help make your life easier. You know, yeah, if if you need that that kind of thing, absolutely. Um, what's life like in LA just now? It's been well, a bit tumultuous of recent times. Yeah, it's interesting because um, you know the the one thing that's really difficult is 
a lot of the stuff that people come out here for is sort of on ice. Mm. You know, like there's no, there aren't any real gigs and all the comedy clubs are shut down for the most part. Like there's, they're trying to operate like restaurants and stuff, but it's not really, I think by and large people are kind of either in two camps, they're super freaked out or it doesn't exist to them. (laughs) And, and I'm in the first, I'm freaked out, but I'm not like gonna like. Um, you're not. You're not. Like, I, got my, I got my wits about me. Like I'm not. I'm not yeah. irrationally afraid of stuff that I understand to not be such a big deal. You know, sure. like um, luckily by me, a lot of people are wearing masks, and it seems like by and large, that's the most bizarre part of it, because. Mm-hmm. The, the social protocols of just going and doing a task, like going to the grocery store or whatever, like that is still a weird thing to have to feel any kind of anxiety about what mm-hmm. other people's behavior around you is. Because these are things that no one really thinks about aside from, okay, that person didn't return their shopping cart. <laughs> and now I can't park in the space because someone was lazy. I mean, now it's a whole other dynamic where the stakes are high in terms of how something like this can get trans transmitted. So I, I don't like looking at the world and being angry at people for, for doing that kind of stuff or like, but I think that's, that's like a weird thing that has crept into day-to-day stuff. Um, I don't know. Like, I don't know a ton of people who have left yet. Like I've, I hear there's like an exodus of LA, like everyone's, leave in new york and la but it's not are there, are there really any know. are there any like um like here at the minute we're on like phase four lockdown so mandatory masks and we have a five kilometer radius that you're allowed to travel in okay and for for in stage when we were in stage three for a while they actually had like police and army roadblocks around the edge of metropolitan melbourne checking wow. people coming in and out like you had to have a you need to get like a a work permit to if you're going to travel to work and stuff like that and if you didn't have a valid reason find you and send you back wow um so there's no, no we, there's no restrictions on movement no there really should be though i think i think uh without trying to get too too into the weeds with politics if perhaps if we had a different type of leader or we had any kind of leader um <laughs> which is, you know, that's how I feel about it. Like, um, I think we'd have a much different set of circumstances in terms of the numbers you're seeing in the news and stuff like that. I don't think, I don't think we're, we're at a place where any of the normal stuff, even if all that stuff was in place, would be able to come back. But I think, yeah, no, it's, it's a nightmare, man. Cause you've, you've got people who basically don't think, it affects them, you know, like there's people who literally don't think that any of this is real. Wow. Um, there's somebody in on Facebook who he's a musician. I'm not going to out him because, and I don't really know this guy personally, but he's adjacent to friends I'll, of mine. I'll, I'll put his Facebook link in, in the, in the description, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he thinks it's all BS, man. He thinks them, he thinks it's like overblown and stuff. And, um, I don't know. Like I, I have two friends who I have one friend 
she's been fighting COVID for like a hundred plus days and she's not getting better. Like she's not in the hospital, but she's not her, like she's not able to function like her. Three, her, three you know, months. Like, yeah. Then I have another friend who had COVID and he's fine, you know? And, and I think the part about this, that's really difficult for people to understand, like Americans generally kind of do, they feel that they can do whatever they want. There's not really this community minded thing. Yeah. You realize there's nothing that there should be. be at times like this. Yeah. It's, it's disturbing, man. Like that's, that's the part of this that I think is the hardest is realizing that like, it's kind of up to us as individuals, you know, mm-hmm. and like people have varying degrees of, um, like freedoms with that. Like I'm lucky that, you know, I have some money saved. I can kind of hunker down for a while. Like I'm not in a bad way financially, but if I was, I have no idea like what, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure you can think back to maybe times in your career where you were living gig to gig, and yeah. if you, you know, if a gig got pulled or whatever, that was a big deal. Yeah, there's, there's going to be people in in that situation right now, and yeah, I don't know. we ha- we have some uh, rules in place. Like people can't get evicted, and people can definitely. Uh, there's there's been like a, a hold on rent. So rent can't go up because um, okay. every year generally landlords yeah. can raise rent they, and they generally do. My place is rent controlled, so it's not ever going to be a crazy amount, but they definitely thought about the people in that regard. But no, it's like people, I think. I is think, there any welfare in place? Like, you know, you can get a couple hundred bucks a week or something. They had that for a while and they haven't renewed it yet. And mm-hmm. our, our Senate basically took a, they basically adjourned until September without any kind of deal in place. So it's, it's pretty terrible, man. Like, That's a shame. Uh, I, you know, I, I think the one thing about, um, about America and I think this is why I think people need to travel. It's like, there's things about America that are great. And I think like there's things about it that, that, definitely um definitely are things that great nations are 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 sort of like they they advance upon you know like there's there's like a lot of wonderful things i'm not running for office so like but like the 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 um the thing that sucks though is like there's a lot of weird anti-intellectualism and xenophobia where people don't even really know what it's like to go to some, some other country and like go to a pharmacy and say, Hey, I'm having this issue. Like I, I was on tour once and I was having some issues in, in my left arm. Um, and, and I went to a pharmacy to buy some ibuprofen and the pharmacist, she talked to me about it for 20 minutes. She was like, Hey, and she's like, you don't want to take this a lot because it'll cause bleeding internally. And you want to, you know what yeah. I mean? Like she was very in here. It's just like, yeah, you just buy the shit and, and buy leave, so. buy like a crate at you know Walmart. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't know, man. It's it's a really strange time period for for everything. Yeah, and uh, you know, like imagine how much it would suck without the internet. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah, I I wouldn't even know 
I mean, so for me, like I live by myself. Right. Um, so I've really been in isolation for most of this time. Any, and any pets or anything? No. Um, I wish at this point, like I'll, I'll see friends on a socially distanced basis, you know, but, but it's still sort of limited. Like it's outside and you know, it's not yeah. like you, there's not very much one can do in that situation. Like you can't, you can't go to like a movie. You can't go see a band play. Yeah. You know, you can't play. And especially like play. as musicians, so much of our socializing is, is involving our work, you know, on the gig at a rehearsal in the studio. Like that's yeah. a lot of the social time that we have as musicians. Yeah. And when that's all taken away, you're like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty crazy, man. Um, like we're in, we're into this, uh, we're into this period now. Like we're like, what, like six months in five months in. Yeah. Um, Hey, I'm going to just stop for a second. Um, can I put my AC on? It might be loud, but let me know if it's too loud. Go for it. We've been having like a heat wave, so it's been kind of hot. I've, I've got the heater on down here. It's actually co- it's cold today in Melbourne. Hold it. Right. It's cold. It's like nine degrees. Do you hear this? Is it, is it messing with the audio? Okay. No. Now zoom, zoom has pretty good background noise cancellation stuff. Okay. Quite it's actually it actually a lot of time thinks that bass is background noise. Oh wow! Yeah, it's like story of my life. Exactly. Yeah, Zoom's screwing us all in the mix, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe I'll talk a little bit about because you you were in New York for a while. Yeah. So, um, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about? time in New York and then why you decided to up stumps as you say and go west (laughs) um okay well so I grew up on the east coast and um I pretty much lived lived there for most of my life um so I moved to New York in the fall of 2004 um and I before that I was living in Boston because I went to Berkeley and then I was hanging out there for a little while and I was starting to go back and forth because the distance from Boston to New York, it's like a four hour bus ride or train ride. So it was an easy thing to do to want to go travel and like hang out there for a couple nights at a time or a night at a time. Like me and some of my friends sometimes would go take the bus to go to the 55 bar and watch Wayne Krantz, you know? So that's how I met, I met, I've known Tim for a really long time and, Yep. Or Keith and Wayne. So that's kind of how that whole thing started. Like there's a real natural progression where you start up in Boston and then you go to New York or some people go to Nashville. Some people go to LA. Um, When I moved to New York. Like the, the graduation of Berkeley is getting to New York. Yeah. I think getting to New York in my case, I also had, some work I was doing at the school, like I was teaching at the summer, some of the summer things, like okay. they had this thing for bass players called bass lines, which was like a week. So I was like a three day long thing where you're, you know, you're teaching prospective students. Um, that was still when Rich Appleman was the chair of the bass department. So like early two thousands. And then um, I did that up until a couple years into Steve Bailey's time there. Um, and then I moved out here, so it didn't, 
wasn't really a cost-effective thing sure. to fly from LA to Boston. But for many years, just being close to Boston, living in New York, I would go up to Boston quite a bit, you know, and, and work up there, or like play gigs or other stuff. So when I moved to New York, I was working with Dave Fuzinski at that point. Like I was in, he had this trio called Keith Express and I was playing, or called Keith, we made a record called Keith Express. And then I was starting to also do some stuff with Screaming Headless Torsos. So my first, when I moved to New York, I already had sort of a tour, right? Like that was going to happen a few months after I got there. Like I was going to go to Europe with the Torsos, which I did. And then through, through Fuzinski, I met Vernon Reed um, a few months before I moved to New York. And so Vernon's like one of my dear friends now. And like, kind of like the first year I moved to New York, like within the first year I did some stuff with torsos. And then I went to Brazil with Vernon and started touring with him. And I was kind of doing both of those situations for a long time. And then, you know, I was in New York for, for 13 years. And, uh, I'd say like the first third of it, I was doing a lot of that kind of stuff with those guys. And then so guitar players like you. Yeah, I guess that, that seems to be the, that seems to be like the, the weird thread with a lot of that. Like I've played with, you know, those guys, people like Alex Skolnick, Josh Smith, cool. um, a very tiny blip on the screen, but there was like an ill-fated tour. I did with Tony McAlpine last uh -huh. year, but that whole thing kind of fell through. Um, I don't know. I've done some stuff with Javier Reyes. Like I'm on one of his records. So it's like, yeah, it's all guitar, like guitar stuff and things like that. But, uh, I don't know. I, I love keyboards too. And I like other instruments, but, <laughs> but I think for me, a lot of the music I like fundamentally is like guitar, bass and drums. Right. So, so, um, so yeah, so I don't know. I, I guess, I, I felt like I had three different time periods in New York. Like the first third was doing a lot of stuff with, with uh, Fusinski and Vernon. Then that sort of tapered off and I stopped working with Fuse. We're friends and stuff, but that situation eventually came to an end. Yep. And um, then, you know, like I kind of, there was this period of time, I guess, where it was sort of during another interesting period for America. Like there was the financial crisis that, caused some problems like with gigs and stuff like there was like some weird cancellations and it wasn't obviously not on the scale that we're in now with COVID but but it was a challenge man that was one of the hardest summers I ever had in that city because a lot of stuff dried up and finances weren't as good as they should have been or could have been so it was a real dark time financially but I still managed to have a good time during that time period. Like I think back now, like there's some stuff I really enjoyed about, about being there, even when things weren't the easiest. Um, but yeah, then I guess the last few years I was sort of just freelancing around, you know, um, I took a pause at one point and got a day gig, like a part-time day gig for a while. Cause I was feeling sort of burnt on music and I still contend, um, I was pretty happy doing that, you know, cause that was the first time I realized, you know, there's, there's something to being a musician, even if you're a lifer where you've got to protect what drew you into it. And if you start to hate it, 
you can do all kinds of irreparable, irreparable damage to your career, you know? Mm. And so one reason why I really liked having a day gig is it never allowed me to become bitter about playing and it gave me the ability to say no to some stuff that I just wasn't feeling like doing. What, so, what was the, what was the day gig? I was working part-time at Apple. Right. So, um, like, like it was an interesting gig because when I was working there, this is like 2009, 2011. I was there for like two years. And, um, you know, it's weird, you know, like I've, I've been in magazines and people knew some people, like people that know the kind of music I make, you know, it's, we're not talking about a lot of people, but yeah. you know, they're like, I remember someone came in that recognized me and it was weird, man. Like, but I, I just was like, look, you know, like I'm trying to, I'm trying to make a record. And I was like, I was working on my second record and, um, I didn't feel any shame in that position. Um, actually one of the coolest stories I have, like right towards the end of my time there, um, it was like the summer of, I forgot, I think it was 2011 or maybe it was 20, uh, 2012. I can't remember. Uh, I wasn't there for longer than two and a half years, but, um, Dennis Chambers came in and he was, he was in there like with, with, uh, cause he was still playing with Santana and I have a lot of friends in common with Dennis, like, and we're from the same state. Like he's from Maryland, I'm from Maryland, but, um, you know, I've been playing with people like Gene Lake. Mm -hmm. Um, even around that time I was working with Gene. Um, I, I, there's a drummer from DC named Sean Rickman and he knows Dennis and, um, like a lot of mutual friends like Dennis knew Fusinski and Vernon and stuff. And I let him hear uh, like half of the tunes off of Coaxial Flutter because it was like a really hot day and he was just trying to stay out of the heat and stuff. <laughs> so we kind of became friends and he actually tried to get me a record deal from listening to that stuff. Like he, wow. he like was like, let me try to talk to Mike Varney. And, I, and nothing ever happened, but just the fact that, uh, that, it, that like um, he liked it enough to want to do that. And I just, we, we just connected on um, social media and I, I've, I've like, we've messaged back and forth, but I got, I owe him a phone call. That's so, um, and then there was another time like John McLaughlin was shopping there and they were having problems with the credit card machines and I had to vouch for him. I was like, this guy's money is good. You can, you can take <laughs> his money. And then he emailed me, like I, I emailed him because I told him like, you know, I've been playing with Fuse and I'm friends with. Tony, who's his uh, nephew, Tony Gray. Right. Um, okay. So, like, he listened to some stuff and wrote me back. So, I mean, it was kind of a weird thing, and he was, like, really sweet. He said, look, man, I hope the next time um, I go in there, you're not working and you're on the road. Hmm. And, um, you know, that's a weird thing because, like, I think the business is, even at that point, was a little bit different. Like, New York, even even around that time period, it's a really tough place to sustain a creative lifestyle. Mm. And I think unless you're like independently wealthy, you really have to figure out how to make it work. And like, I always dug having that day gig. So that was sort of like a specific time period for me there. And then, so like the third part of my time in New York was mostly playing and teaching. And uh, I was just doing that. And then, you know, that mixed with like remote sessions and things of that nature. And I guess I sort of knew that 
I didn't, I didn't really see a future in New York anymore because I'd moved around a lot. Um, and it, that gets really exhausting. And I think to live in New York, if you don't own any property, like you're kind of always behind the eight ball of like rents going up and stuff like that. It can get really, really daunting. So, um, not that that doesn't happen in other cities, but I just felt like I was moving around a lot in New York and I wanted, I wanted to change and moving. Um, sucks. I hate moving. <laughs> what's that? I hate moving. Yeah. It's the worst. I haven't moved. I only moved once in LA and that was just because when I moved here, I had a place where I was hanging for a couple months and then I knew that that wasn't a permanent situation. And then I've been in my place for a few years, but, um, yeah, it's, it just kind of ran its course, you know, but I didn't leave New York with any, there weren't any negative feelings. It wasn't like, ah, oh, screw New York. I'm done. It was very much like, I've definitely had moments where when I lived there, I felt that way where like, I wasn't, I didn't love it all the time, but yeah. Do you, do you think, do you think the city shaped you as a player? Absolutely. Oh man. Like that, that's the one thing I, mean, I know that that sounds very hyperbolic. And, and I think, I think like people like to say that because it sounds like a nice part of the narrative, but just so, so people who don't maybe know my playing or know me, when I moved to New York, I very much was like influenced by like Matt Garrison and like Gary Willis. And I still love those guys, you know, people like O'Teal. And I, I had a five string that I was playing where I had a high C on there. Yep. And, um, you know, like my first record had come out a few months before, like literally a month before I moved like mad science. That's my first record. So how, how old were you when you put out my times? I was 28, 28. Okay. Yeah. I was 28. Um, so at that point, you know, like I was really interested in elements of that kind of bass playing. I mean, I had a really good foundation and I, you know, I was always really interested in playing grooves and pocket, but I was also interested in harmony and playing melodies and stuff like that. You know, so at, at a certain point that was where my ears were. Mm. Um, I think from playing with, people who are very unique on their instrument um, like Vernon Reed and Fuse are very unique guitar players. I think it started to dawn on me that like, well, technically Matt Garrison's my neighbor. And if someone wants him to play, they'll call him. Like I can't do what he does better than what he does, mm. you know? And, and like, I, it made me really think about trying to figure out, whatever my lane is, you know? Um, and it sort of broke me out of that whole thing of, I want to sound like my heroes, you know, like I definitely don't think people have to try that hard to like understand the types of musicians I really looked up to. But I think what I didn't really want to have was like a situation where I play two notes and people think, I'm somebody else. Sure. And I think, you know, that's always a thing everybody struggles with, but I think no other place really made that apparent for me other than New York. And really just from kind of hanging out and observing the creative scene, you know, and just realizing that like everybody's trying to do something unique and be true to themselves. Oh, and the, so the, guy, the guys that are 
booking the gigs or booking you for the gigs, the guys that are unique and identifiable. Yeah. 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 You know, yeah. I mean, that's like a real, I found that to be one part very inspiring and then in a weird way, very freeing because then it's like, okay, I don't have to worry about not being able to play like so-and-so. Now I can just figure out what I like to do and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll work from that angle. And that's helped me as an adult musician immensely. That's not to say that, like, I won't hear somebody that I really like and, and you know, like, I don't know if I get intimidated, but, you know, it's like you kind of like, oh, wow, that's that's scary. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, I mean, just listen to, any, like, any bass player from Brazil at the minute, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One time... I was on I was on this festival a couple of years ago where uh, it was like I think it was 2013 and um, that should have been like I mean that was a low key bass hang for the ages because um, Stanley Clark was there Victor Wooten's band was there and that was when he had like five like four bass players in that band so it was like Steve Anthony Wellington and that guy Dave Welsh and then um, then Scott Henderson's trio was there with Travis Carlton. Travis is one of my favorite bass players. And then um, Will Calhoun had a trio with Charnett Moffat. And that guy's a phenomenally good bass player. Right. And then you had all the Brazilian cats. And so there was one night where Pipokina was hanging out at this hotel that we were all staying at, playing like this acoustic bass guitar. And he and I just passed it back and forth. We were trying to pass it back and forth in time we were playing the chicken and it was fun man and like the music that i was playing i didn't really play a lot of notes like i got like one solo it was like vernon's thing it, it's not really a thing where i solo a lot but like we it was, were like, playing it was like a normal, normal bass gig <laughs> yeah normal bass gig like with one or two spots to do something but when we were sitting there just going back and forth i like chopped it up and he's like oh okay like because like he he heard that set we did and it was just all big, you know, big grooves and, yep. yeah. but it like, he, it was funny, man. But you know, it was, it was cool to sit next to him and like, just hear him like rip on an acoustic bass guitar. And then, um, there were some other people too that were there, um, that were like, I uh, forget the guy's name, man. He, he was like another, one of the real preeminent Brazilian bass players. I'll, I'll remember it later. Have you come across Junior Braguinha? Uh, I met him out here. Okay, but I don't. At that time, I didn't know him. Like, he's he's been here a couple of times with uh, Virgil Donati. Yeah, didn't yeah. That guy's great, man. There's like no shortage of great players like that, you know. Um, but I think the other challenge with that, and I'm not. This is not to belittle anything about anyone who plays bass, technically or not. I think now we're in the age where everyone plays fast. Hmm. So that's really not that the, it's not always the most interesting thing. You know, I think there's some people that do it where it's like, like when Hadrian does it, it's, it's very clear and there's nothing there that's not intended to be there. And that's a very powerful thing. But yeah. I, I'm saying like, generally that's a tool that everybody, like most bass players of a certain ilk have at their disposal. So it comes down to, you know, like your phrasing and whatever your fingerprints are. Yeah. And, um, you, you still have to have um, information. Right. Wrapped up in there. 
Right. And so what I figured out somehow really without anyone telling me, but just from like observing the room I was in, I was like, wow, I need to really be brave and not worry if I don't sound like what my heroes sound like. I got to figure out what I sound like and, you know, try to think like that. Because I think otherwise, um, I don't know. It just felt like it was the right time to make that shift. So, so, so it's almost like New York kind of like opened your eyes and your ears, yeah. some chops. And then when you were ready to kind of develop your own voice, so to speak, LA was a good bed for that. I think so. I mean, I think there's an element to LA that I still haven't figured out um, because I think, and I think now that we're in this weird state of like flux where who knows what kind of industry will exist in a couple of years from now. Like um, I won't openly speculate cause I don't know. I don't think anybody knows, but I think on one hand you have people out here that do a lot of work that revolves around making money, which is not bad. Like you've got people, there's like the pop industrial complex. That's what I call it. Mm-hmm. Um, no one else calls it that. I don't think, but, You've got people that are in that world, and um, it's a huge thing, man. Like the entertainment element of that, it's 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 definitely like a powerful world, and, and some people really want to be a part of that. Um, I found that's not really something I care that much about. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that my path is really the path of I'm going to play with like pop star X, Y, and Z. Um, and, and like kind of getting to a place where I could accept that was challenging. Cause I feel like, isn't that the dream? Like you get on someone's big tour and, but I think because I've been behind the curtain enough and I know I have friends that have been and left things like that. The real recurring theme in being a musician. And I wonder if you feel this way too. There's always this element of like, what's next. And then it's not just what's next, but how much power do I have, Mm. you know? And I feel like if, if I was like almost, you know, if I was like 30, 30 years into a career and I didn't have any more power in, in my line of work than when I started, I think for me, that would be a problem. You know, what, what, what do you perceive as being power? I think power is being able to say no and being able to call your own shots right. and, and getting paid to do what it is that you do. Um, so ha- having, you know, your na- having your name in lights. Yeah. Or maybe not in lights, but just, you know, you, you've, you, I think people that just have carved out a lane that allows them to work, you mm-hmm. know? I mean, the thing is, is like, I don't have a lot of rules personally about what I would or wouldn't play if it makes sense. Because, because, you know, honestly, I mean, who doesn't love, playing like it's the greatest but i think there's other stuff that comes with it like it's like okay um how you know if it's like a touring thing how long will i be gone for what's the bread like do i like the people yeah there's a difference between liking people right big triangle right (laughs) the hang the music and the money you need two of these (laughs) but then you have like the like the the idiosyncrasies where it's like well 
I like these people enough to be out for four weeks, but maybe not 12 weeks. Yeah. You know, so it's, I don't know. It's, it's like a weird, um, it's a weird, weird thing. But I, I think by and large, it's like, I think having power in, in this day and age, maybe not like, let's say prior to mar- March of this year, it's just diversification. Maybe having like a few different things going at once. I think that's really what, because I think the thing that really was interesting about my time in New York was the business really changed a lot, you know, like even just in terms of like the way people consume music. Mm -hmm. um, When I moved there, you know, I think I had just gotten my first iPod, like within a couple years of, you know what I mean? Like I had just gotten like the, the click wheel fourth generation. Yeah. Maybe that was the third generation, but it was like, I think it was the fourth, like the click wheel iPod. I had, um, I did, I did some cruise ship work and uh-huh. it came, off, came off a cruise ship contract and everybody was talking about iPods. And I was like, cause you know, back in, in those days in the cruise ship, you were pretty much isolated <laughs> right. you know, from, from everything else that was going on. And so I came back home and everyone was talking about iPods. I'm like, that's a, that's a stupid name for a thing. What? <laughs> Next minute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was such a big thing, man. Like that was a huge thing for me is like, someone that put music out too. Like I, I benefited pretty greatly from the iTunes music store. So like the whole download thing, that was definitely, um, that was like one thing that was an interesting component. There were still record stores when I moved to New York, like there was still tower records. Mm-hmm. There was still Virgin mega store. Um, people still went to the record store, even though we were in this weird age where physical media is starting to, struggle a little bit yep um but you know by the time i left it's like everybody's streaming stuff vinyl's kind of on the way back i guess yeah um, but it just seemed like from a technological standpoint there were other things at play in that city um because all of a sudden live music's not the only thing people can do mm. you know there's all these other ways people can entertain themselves. Mm-hmm. So it felt like a lot of the stuff that maybe people were drawn to New York with, like in the nineties, like, and I wasn't there in the nineties. So I, I'm like, I'm sort of idealizing it based on what my friends who were there during that time period have told me about, but it just seems like there was even like with, with like people going to the bars to meet women or, you know, like whatever, like, now these apps like Tinder where you can just like swipe and like that, that changed a lot probably for like a lot of bars I would imagine. Like, I know that sounds silly, but, but I know that like in terms of the habits of the kinds of nights people would spend at bars, if that's what they're out to do. Like I I talked to a bartender once at this place near where I lived in Harlem and he was telling me like people that that's changed the kind of night that people have, like how long they'll stay in a bar, blah, blah, blah. Because, you know, they feel that in terms of the money they make from tips and what have you. So you just got to like, the hardest thing to do sometimes if you're kind of in one particular corner or niche. And so the music thing is very much like its own kind of community. So no one's really thinking about, the bigger picture of what a giant metropolis like New York, like what are people doing with their spare time? How are they, how are they entertaining themselves? 
Um, you know, the one person I always like talking to about this, and I'd always see him real late at night, was Jojo Mayer. Because he'd sometimes, like, he'd hang at people's gigs and stuff, and he'd always have, like, interesting stuff to say about, like, where New York's been going and stuff. And Interesting. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's, I think that's the thing. It's, like, from 2004 to 2016 when I left, it just seems like the way in which we consume media and music, that's changed. So, by and large, the effects of that, that affects everything. Like it's not, you know, like yeah, the, I mean, the, the trickle down effect was real. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do you notice that where you are? Like, like were, were people coming to gigs? Like, or was it, was there a drop off or, you know? Um, well, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm originally from Glasgow in Scotland. So yes. I've been here for six, six years, coming up six years. So from like 2014, um, so it's hard for me to really say because the first couple of years you're still trying to get into the scene, find some gigs and stuff like that. But from what I know, like what you were saying, you know, from what I know, speaking to guys who have been here their whole lives, yeah, it's definitely less gigs, more musicians, less money. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's sort of a new paradigm for a lot of people, you know, and I think yeah, an uncomfortable one. I think we're in a situation now with COVID where everybody's been sort of faced Facing, not, I wasn't going to say facing the music because that would be too too stupid and obvious. But like, right? <laughs> but people are facing like an alternate existence without performance based mm-hmm. income or performance, at least for now. Yeah. And so, I would imagine for some people who really that's their arena, it's probably really hard for them. A lot um, of the older cats. Yeah. Yeah, and it's not you know, no fault of their own. It's just like, I mean, why wouldn't you? If 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 you able to make a great living from playing great music that you love, right? Of course, why would you ever really think about diversifying? Because this right. is an unimaginable situation, really. Yeah, no, nobody could prepare for this moment. But uh, I think I like doing production stuff, and I like making tracks, and so there's an element to my existence where I've, I don't mind sure. being a hermit and working on stuff. And then at the end of the day, I've got like some stuff that I worked on and then, yeah, I don't know, but, but I will say even, even as like just a balancing act, I'm, I miss playing because mm. to me playing a gig is really where you can get, if not from anybody else, just from the feeling of like, you can validate, okay, is what I'm working on is this effective? Like, is it working? Am I, you know, is what I'm trying to, yeah, exactly. Is it going to, is it resonating with people? And, and, you know, that's a real, it's a real, it's a real magical thing that I think has a healthy balance to the stuff where you're not around people. Um, So, and I think a lot of musicians aren't create, aren't artists in, in the, in the idea that they're not creating their own art. Like yeah. a lot of, especially sidemen, right? A lot of bass players, drummers, guitar players, keyboards are just, we're, we're guns for hire, you know? So right. then when, when, those, when that's not happening, when nobody needs to hire people, um, yeah. and, well, you need to start creating your own content, then, um, you know, people have had to quickly retool or go like, what do I 
do I have anything to say? You know, which right. is maybe a good thing. You know, maybe there's going to be some more art from people who who didn't who weren't doing it before. But who knows? Yeah, I I think it's it's definitely. I feel really. I I can sympathize for people who are in that situation where it's like they're not, you know, like this was a an unfair hand that that we you know and like we're kind of at the lowest, not the lowest part of the food chain, but just because of the nature of how things are, like hmm. in the way people uh, watch music live. I mean, there's I can't think like I've I've definitely stayed up at times like or I haven't been able to sleep since this started where I think about has there ever been a gig I've done that wouldn't be like super dangerous right now just in terms of how many people that were there or the size of the room because a lot of the stuff that I like playing exists in smaller to mid-sized rooms and you're you can't really avoid people in the in those spaces the last gig I did before lockdown I was playing with Mark Letary and um, this drummer, Sean Wright. And there's already talk of Corona. Like everyone knew it was a thing and people, this is kind of where people couldn't find hand sanitizer at the stores. Mm -hmm. There was like phases of it. It was like, first you couldn't find hand sanitizers. Then people were freaking out about toilet paper. Um, I know, I know. Um, But it was fun, man. Like playing with Mark's a blast. I've, I've done it before. And I played two gigs with him. We had a great time. But I remember like after both gigs, in between every time I'd talk to somebody, I'd go wash my hands and like mm. hand sanitize. And like, you know, that pre some shit's about to hit the fan paranoia was about to set in. Where where was the gig? Um, We played one that was sort of down in Orange County. I forget the name of the venue. Right. But then we played one in downtown LA. And like, Dude, there is no stage. We were like surrounded by people. Um, is that the I think I posted, huh? Was that the is that the blue whale? Not the blue whale, but um, a similar type of setup ultimately, where like we were just in this middle, the middle of this room. Everyone was surrounding us. We had to like, you know, there was no way to get around people without passing through them. Yeah. So like, imagining that scenario now is like, you know, like. It's just, it's do terrifying. You, do you know the, the sax player, Bob Reynolds? Yes. Not super well, but we've met and we have mutual friends. He, he posted a, a, a vlog maybe a month, a couple of months ago because he was on tour in Italy and Europe. Like he basically, it was like a tidal wave <laughs> following him around and he, he got sick. You know, the, the vlog's amazing. Like he was so close. He, he got sick, really sick. So he's flying back and he had the mask on and stuff. He didn't have um, COVID, but he had something pretty similar, like flu-like symptoms and stuff. Wow. Yeah, and just that, that story of like every every city they left, it would kind of like get shut down <laughs> and going on yeah. and stuff and going, oh, maybe this is a serious thing, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are a few people I know that were over there. Like Tim, Tim was over there with Krantz. That's uh, right, yeah. Yannick was with Bob, right? Were they kind of out? Yeah. Um, yeah, it just, it was weird. I, to be honest, um, when I when I went to Nam, because, you know, that's, Nam's like 45 minutes from here. Like, Anaheim's about 45 minutes from LA. Uh, something like that. I don't know. Like, 
The traffic's good, about mm -hmm. 45 minutes. This is in January? No, it's January. January. Yeah. Um, people were talking about COVID, man. Like, it was definitely not something that, because there was, you know, there was like some, I mean, this definitely sounded like some campfire ghost story type stuff at the time. But someone was saying, like, be careful in, like, the Hall E because someone got carried out on a stretcher. And, and it was like, what? You know. And now, now it's like, you can totally understand and believe that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, man. I, I really think that, uh, that, you know, I'm not a vir virologist and I'm not a scientist, but based on, like, the time frame of everything and considering that NAM, you have, like, 10,000 people in that space mm -hmm. um, at any given point, I would imagine, like, it would seem irrational to think that COVID-19 wasn't around at mm. some point. Especially because it's people from all over the world. Right. And, and like LAX is a global, that's a global hub. Yeah. You know, so, so it, yeah, it's, it's a lot of weird, you know, it, it's, it's been a really bizarre, it's yeah. been bizarre, man. Just the yeah. whole thing. Um, so thinking about your solo career, you know, you, you released uh, Mad Science when you're 28 and then Coaxial Flutter, which is a killer album. Thank you. I love that. Um, how, what's been your arc or your path or your goals in terms of being an, an, an individual artist and what if, what would you, if you could go back and give yourself some advice, um, you know, back in the day, what, what would you, what would you, what would you say having learned what you've got now? Well, you know, it's weird when I did mad science, I don't know that I had a real grand design with it. Like there wasn't any kind of, but I would definitely say, um, no exaggeration. I would not have any kind of career if it wasn't for that, because through mad science, um, you know, I'd written a couple tunes that I wanted guitar on and I really felt like Dave Fusinski was the right guy for it because, um, anyone could have played guitar on those tracks and it would have been, it would have been cool. Like I could hear Mike Stern playing on that stuff and it would probably sound awesome. Or I could hear someone like a, uh, even like a more blues kind of guitar player with less jazz vocabulary mm -hmm. playing on that stuff. And it might be cool. But the thing I liked about Fuse's playing is like, he's got sort of like this weird, unique take on things and, and besides his vocabulary, which is cool, he's got like a real sonic palette. So mm -hmm. um, I just kind of went for broke and asked him if he wanted to play on it, you know. And it's one of those things where he was willing to do it. He wanted to hear what it sounded like, you know, and I had some stuff where I played it with some friends. Uh, and so he, he was down. And it was really just – I was just trying to get him to play on my stuff. He liked my playing. And we, when he started teaching there, we started to jam and somehow he started calling me for music. And that really helped me position myself with other people. And uh, it was a good way to go around New York as like a new person there and talk to people like um, some of those musicians in that circle. Um, so it gave you a bit of kudos clout. Yeah, or, you know, it's just at least a way to, like, make it less awkward to talk to somebody. I mean, I think the thing is, like, no matter what, 
people are very forgiving. Like if you just want to say hi and then you talk from there and like, you don't have to have an angle. Like, you know, like, Hey, I play with this person. Like I found most people I meet, even if I don't know if they're a musician or not and find out later, although that person's amazing, you know, like I've, I've had that experience too, where it's like, you know, like there's a, there's a kid. He's not, I don't think he's not a kid, but he's like younger than me. Um, I gave him, you know, I teach him every now and then. And uh, he's in this dope metal band called moon tooth and they're awesome. Like <laughs> complicated music. The singer's great. Cool. The guitar player and the drummer are great. He sounds great playing the bass lines on that stuff. And it's like, this kid's super humble. And so it was like one of those things where it's like, you just don't know who you're talking to. I don't think people have to necessarily sell what their relationship to the music industry is when you just meet somebody on like a gig or something sure. or at, at their gig. But yeah. for whatever reason, it gave me some confidence to talk to people and like trying to hustle. But, you know, I don't know. It, it's weird. It, it gave me like a good, um, sort of a good thing to have in the back pocket. But what it also did was it started to get me to think about composition and think about like what, what can be done with instrumental music. Now, mad science is definitely, you can tell I'm sort of trying to make sense of my influences. Yeah. And I would argue that like, even though it's intent wasn't really to be a bass record, it, probably comes off like a bass record, but maybe a well-intended bass record where, where some consideration was, was made for songs. And, and like, um, by the time I got around to doing Quaxia Flutter, I was way more confident with who I was as a player. So there's moments on there where I play stuff, but I was more concerned with like the writing sure. than playing. Um, but I think, to answer the second part of the question, if I could go back and give myself advice, I think I would have done more to play more shows as a solo artist, and I would have tried to make more records and document stuff more frequently. Um, because I think I probably had more there that I could have built that I just didn't consider because I think I still really wanted to be a sideman and play with different people and you didn't, you, didn't want that to, seemed, you didn't want to be known as the guy that does like the crazy instrumental music because you might not get the call for the straight ahead R&B gig. Yeah, but I think in retrospect, now I don't think I would mind that so much because I think we're in this world now where a lot of those scenarios don't really come up. Mm. Like not to the extent that like things are like life altering, you know, like if, like, I, I don't, I think I got to, like, one day I realized, you know, because I have friends that are amazing musicians. Like, one of the guys who plays drums on both my records, Adam Deitch. Like, Adam's ridiculous. Like, he plays well, great. one of my favorite bands in the yeah. universe. I've known those guys since we were kids. Like, I, I met them the same time they met each other. And there was actually, not that this matters, but here's a little, like, side story that only a few people know about. Um when we were in college together, there was like another thing where it was like myself, Adam Deitch and Jeff Basker. And so those tunes on mad science, like orange and a couple of the other ones were, it's the three of us, like actual proof. We do a cover of actual proof and um, we do another tune. Like we used to, that's when Deitch would play more of his fusion stuff. 
Right. And Jeff was like, Jeff's now like a Grammy award winning producer. But at the time he was a jazz comp major hmm. and we were working out like, you know, we're trying to play like stuff like Herbie tunes and yeah. weather report. And so while this was all going on, like lettuce was doing their thing. But my point with Adam is like, he's a really, really great, there's so many things he can do on the drums that are not just what people know him for. And I think like, he's definitely made records. Like he has like a quartet record. That's got some jazz type yeah. stuff on there. That's but, like, um, got like pyramids on the cover or something. I think yeah. that's yeah. cool. And he's got, yeah. he does the, the break science stuff. Yep. But he's got, you know, he's got like really, he's got chops, man. And like, I, I don't know that he's ever felt the need to like flex in that way or like make music that, that reflects the amount of facility he actually has. But Mm -hmm. if he wanted to, he could. Mm. Um, But I think what I like about the way he does it is he's always been very aware of like what he likes to do and what he doesn't mind that people perceive him as having a strong suit being that kind of a drummer. Sure. Uh, you know, and, and like, but, but I think like, you know, for me as a, as a side musician, like sometimes it can be confusing because of people, I think about this a lot because if I put up a weird clip of me doing something that's weird, like I know nobody's going to call me to do that. Yeah. But I know that like, I could also make a clip of just doing a walking baseline and, and it would be like the kind of walking baseline everyone would want to hear on their shit. So it's like, but I think ultimately, um, I think having a lane is more important now than just being part of the status quo. Cause I think, especially in this moment that we're in now, like mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you know, 500 songs you can play on a wedding. Game. That at this point, I mean, it doesn't mean that there's no value in learning that, but I'm saying, if someone threw you a raft and like, here's how you survive COVID-19. Let's say like you have like two things, like you have the knowledge of 500 songs, but there's no gigs <laughs> or let's say you have a unique paradigm and a unique perspective and you're doing something interesting. Yeah. That's currency now. So, and, and especially now because we have, we have a direct connection to the people who will be into that shit, you know? Right. Right. Well, you, this is this is the phone is your global shop window. You know, Instagram right. stories like the, the way to connect with people and like what you were saying Absolutely. about documenting what you were doing with the with your first couple of albums. Like people right. want to be on that journey with you and they want to to yeah. see and and know and connect more because they're used to that and so many other things that they're into. Yeah, I mean, I think for me too, I really like the elements of bass playing where you're just playing with people and trying to make whatever the music is work. Yep. So, so like from a personal goal standpoint, like I care what drummers think, Mm -hmm. like when we're playing together, like I want it to feel how it's supposed to feel. I want it to sound good. And like, I've played with enough drummers that are so different from each other, man, where it's like, like the first drummer I played with when I moved to LA was James Gadsden. Mm. So playing with that dude was like amazing. And like, we were just playing kind of old R&B stuff that sounded like records he had played on, which is probably weird for him, but like, 
but like he and I had a nice lock and he was, he, we were talking about playing and he had some cool stories about Chamberson and like just how he had total recall and stuff like that. But he was saying, he's like, I could tell you play other music, but you're, you have vocabulary in this. So it feels the way it's supposed to feel, you know? And then I've played with like people like, like Keith Carlock and I've, Thomas Pridgen. And then like I've done stuff with Cindy Blackman and it's like, they're all really different, but as a bass player, like, even though I, I'm saying, like, I think having an identity and, like, a creative a creative uh, path is important. I think I do take a lot of pride and pleasure in, like, being able to play with people and, like, trying to make the music work. So I, I say that, but I'm not saying that at the expense of being, like, a good bass player. But I just think ultimately the path of being, like, a session person is a little bit harder to define now and in a weird way i find that having a thing that people know you for helps you get work so it's like a weird right i don't know if i'd call it a catch-22 but it's similar to that it, maybe because um extremes are now less extreme you know perhaps right you know so what might have been viewed as that's some pretty far out fusion stuff is like well that's actually pretty tame compared to you know what we have right. or, or whatever. Sure. Yeah, um, this, uh, I don't know if you can see that. This groove. Right. Yeah, yeah. This, um, this funk, True Fire TV, all different kinds of funk. So is funk, you know, a real pillar of your bass playing and your development? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I would say that like, well, okay. So I grew up in the nineties, you know, like I grew up in the eighties, but I came of age in the nineties. Sure. How, how old are you just now? I'm, I'm 44. Okay. So like I'm generation X. Um, at that time period, like when I was in high school, um, you know, you had bands like living color, yeah. um, fishbone, Primus, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, and and those were gateway bands for other stuff. Like for me, like with uh, like you know, like through the Chili Peppers. Like I remember reading that like one of the songs he did was like a uh, meter song. It's like, well, who are the meters? You know, and then uh, like checking out Parliament Funkadelic and stuff like that. Like that rhythmic thing. That's probably the the style that most had an effect on my concept of groove. Right. And then, you know, I also liked a lot of progressive rock stuff like rush was a huge deal for me mm. as a young musician. And even as an adult, like really like the more that I learned, cause I didn't really know anything about their story. So I didn't know that they just were like, we're going to do whatever we want or else, mm. you know, like it was kind of, you know, I, I think, I think they're, they're like one of those bands that like a lot of young musicians flock to because they're just playing with the songs are cool. So it's like, they, no one's really yeah. going to like, it's not like here, let me put on this instrumental shit. That's like really hard to understand, but mm -hmm. there's cool fills or cool solos. It's like, well, no, this is a song you can hear on the radio and here it is. Um, a lot of the, the music I like though, seem to have roots in R and B and funk. Even is if that's, like, that's, uh, that's a, a Maryland thing as well. Oh, I don't know, man. Um, that's a good question. 
Scott Andre like, says hi, by the way. <laughs> oh, cool. Tell him. Yeah, Scott's cool, man. Like, the one thing about being adjacent to D.C., because I, I grew up not far from D.C., mm. like, there's a style of music there called Go-Go, mm. which, Chuck like, Brown? has been... Huh? Chuck Brown? Chuck Brown. Exactly. Um, you know, like, Miles Davis had, had Ricky Wellman on drums during, like, the Amandala period, like, for live stuff. Um, he was really into that pulse, and that type of music, like you hear Chuck Brown or like the Junkyard Band, the closer you got to DC, like people would drive around with that stuff pouring out of the car. Like, mm. and that groove is infectious, man. And mm. it's just like that kind of like that slow, that that's like where the quarter note is. Um, like that whole thing really, even though like I didn't go to many go-go shows and, and if I'm being fair to the times a white kid from the suburbs probably wouldn't have wouldn't have been the safest thing to do right. depending on where that show was like there was a club called the ibex which was like a big place for go and it wasn't safe like there was always like potential like violent things that could pop off but nonetheless like that music was accessible so i think that was like a pocket from from dc that even if like I can't say that I listened to a ton of it, but I heard it a lot. And I think it did make me think about like pocket and stuff like that. But the, um, the Minneapolis, the Prince thing seep in as well a little bit. Oh yeah. Like Prince was like, when I was a little kid, like third grade, like I got purple rain and that album changed my life. Mm. And hmm. not even in like the exaggerated sense. Like I, I heard it. It really made me want to study music. There's strings at the end of the song Purple Rain that, yeah. you know, that whole part of it just still blows my mind. But, um, yeah, like just I remember listening to even stuff after Purple Rain because I didn't really – I've always been like a huge Prince fan, but I didn't really become like a mega Prince fan until I could start to like deep dive into bootlegs and like mm. have access to more stuff. Yeah. Um, Cause I don't think even as a kid, I was aware that he played all the instruments, you know, like it was more like I thought he had a band, the band was doing all that stuff. And they, and to a certain extent they were, but you know, like, um, it wasn't until I was at Berkeley for this five week program when I was in high school that one of the RAs, she was a huge Prince fan. And she was like, you should listen to this because he's playing the bass and he's playing everything else. And it was like for let's work or something. Mm. I was like, that's one of the greatest bass lines I've ever heard. Um, so I don't know, man. It's weird. Like the funk thing was always, the funk and R&B thing was always kind of in the background. Um, but I'm one of those kids too that like when I was in seventh grade, like around the time I started playing, I really like metal and I really like hip hop. And for me, like Injustice for All was like one of the biggest records of my youth. I still love that record to death. And when I was like, you know, so it's like, so if you're if a lot of metal and hip hop anthrax. Yeah. Anthrax. Absolutely. Bring um, the noise. <laughs> yeah. Um, also like, I think, I think that's, I don't know. I always really liked the drums. I always really liked the drums and I always really liked, 
I couldn't decide between drums or guitar before I started playing bass. So I think <laughs> a lot of my influences were bass players that were sort of in the middle of all that. Right. Um, so, so yeah, but like funk is definitely, that's the pulse that informs most of how I would approach playing stuff, even if it's not funk. Mm. Um, I hear it very, you know, very gritted out or like a layback if I need to, or, you know, yeah, I guess that's, that's it. But I found that, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, there's certain bands that spring to mind like extreme um, right. or like Pantera, you know, they're not, they're not funk bands, but man, they've got oh. a groove. Oh man. Yeah. Pantera, Van Halen, Van Halen, like if you listen to those first six records, Shuffles. I mean, they were cool with Sammy, but like the stuff, there's like a swagger to those grooves. Yeah. That, comes from like that whole thing yeah absolutely man like guns and roses i would say you know like duff and yeah Yeah, duff was great um helmet there was a kind of a metal band called helmet they had some cool rhythms that led to my fascination and love of mashuga like i heard mashuga in the 90s right one of my my friends was is he's like a big metal fan and he's out here um he, I remember walking by his room, his dorm, and I heard it was one of the songs. I think it was um, Future Breed Machine, and like the guitar solo, like Frederick sounded, he sounded like uh, Holdsworth. So I walked by as that part was happening. Like, what is, <laughs> what is this shit? Like, who's the new Holdsworth album? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, he's like, it's Meshuggah. And so, you know, they were kind of thrashy at that point. But then the record that came out after that. Um, chaos fear mm. that was where, like where the rhythmic thing kind of, like they've gotten like exponentially more into that realm but chaos fear kind of blew my mind yeah so i don't know i think that's really at the helm of what i like to do with music and with bass like rhythm has always been at the front and center of it even though i like playing melodies and mm. i would much rather like the rhythm is what pulls me in 80% of the time. Did you ever, did you ever get into Dillinger escape plan? Yeah. Yeah. Those guys are crazy, man. Those guys blew my mind as well. I remember seeing them live and, um, it was just like a force of nature. Holy. Yeah. I'm friends with Liam, man. Every now and then we'll like text and stuff. He's, he's really great. Yeah. Cool. That's, yeah. Um, maybe we can talk a little bit about, um, teaching education yeah. how you how you approach it what you what you see maybe as common um common issues that you need to deal with a lot with students um what you think are some maybe core pillars that people should really always be focusing on right well um i think the biggest thing i notice with students um is there's a need and a desire to want to learn how to connect everything. Mm. So um, a lot of times it comes down to how does one build a vocabulary? How does one use that vocabulary? And and the thing about being a bass player um, is generally sometimes like you don't have to use very much of it to be effective, you know? Like you could take an idea and offset it by like one sixteenth note, 
and all of a sudden it's a completely different idea that makes the whole thing work different. Totally. Yeah. Or, you know, there's like all these little tiny things that you can do with bass. It's not as grandiose as like being like a keyboard player or a guitar player where it involves, you know, like sometimes bass, there's like tiny little changes you can do or little clever things that, that can really um, make something work, but it's always different. You know, it's always like, I think like, for me, like the, a lot of the students that I end up teaching, they, it's not even about chops or soloing, you know, like I'll occasionally get a student that wants to learn mm -hmm. weirdo techniques that I use. And I'm always very, very adamant about saying, look, this stuff is fun, but it's not going to get you gigs. And if that's why you want to work on it, like don't feel like you have to, if you're just curious and it's something you want to work on, it takes a lot of time to be able to use it. Otherwise it's just something to do, you know, for fun. Sure. But, um, the stuff that I end up working with people on is like how to organize an approach to using um, their harmony, their sense of harmony and like maybe their sense of like melody if they want to like get into playing fills, but like how do you even organize that? Like how do you, how does one decide where to put something? Mm. And, and a lot of what I end up teaching people how to do is like think in terms of like eight bar phrases or think in terms of 16 16 bars mm -hmm. or think about like subtle things you, that you can play that don't involve changing your part too much, mm. you know? And then, um, so a lot of times it, it ends up getting people to identify what they know already and how to like expand on that. Mm -hmm. So someone's like, Hey, I only know how to use like a G major pentatonic scale. And then it's like, cool. Try that over E minor. And then tell, you know what I mean? Like just trying to find like little mind blown, <laughs> right? Just, just trying to find like tiny things that people can do. That's like one little step outside of what they're very comfortable doing. And I think like that's the pace at which really being able to have an approach where you're using vocabulary. I think the way I learned, that's how I learned. Like I would take one or two ideas and figure out, what to do with them in a couple different contexts. And then that gave me the confidence to like, okay, I understand what this is. I can use that or I can, you know, it's at my disposal. Mm. Um, so I, I think a lot of what my approach to education is, it's mostly trying to give people usable things that they can take with them and use in various situations. Um, but there's, like there's, 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 there's obviously going to be some universal tools, right? Right. Time right. bone technique. Yeah. Um, you know, tertiary harmony, all that kind of stuff. That stuff. But even more basic than that, like note lengths. Yeah. That really is a thing that, that um, listen I try to, Bernard, to get. Listen to Bernard Edwards and, <laughs> you know, right. try, and play, try and play those sheet grooves with all long notes. <laughs> right. Yeah, or just knowing like what it's what to do in a situation where you might have to play lots of notes, but some of them are rounder than the others. You know, and like some people rob the very last sixteenth of beat four. You know, like there's all there's like that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. So I'm sure like for some people, like they'll come to me and like I'll be like, yeah, you should focus on this, and they're underwhelmed by how simple it is to point that out but it's like no this will really change 
how you play if, mm. you, if you focus on this. Um, so that's what I try to do with people, and I try to get them to think about um, just things that, like, I can relate to them that are useful. Like, one thing that I like to get people to consider is, like, practicing stuff at different tempos, but not, like, not like slow, medium, ludicrous speed. Like, okay, this feels good at 108. How's it feel at 110? Or how's it feel at 106? Because that's a challenge that, I mean, I don't know if you've had that experience, but I definitely have had that experience where, like, if something moves by, like, 2 BPM, it could feel strange, mm. you know, and like, can totally not feel comfortable. And it's a weird mind. Oh, I think, like, I think a lot of time, like, for me, I discover a lot of my um, rhythmical accuracy is a lot, a lot of time connected to my my muscle memory, my technique. So yeah. stuff that stuff that feels good at one twenty, when you put it down to one ninety, or when you put it down to ninety, it's like that always sounds rushed. Right. Whatever. It's like, on the, theoretically, it should be just the same. It should be just as easy. But because a lot of your you know those muted notes or those go, you know ghost notes or the way you articulate things is wrapped up in your technique. It also affects your your timing. Yeah, that this is this is a good observation that you know running stuff at subtle different speeds and paying attention to how it how how you how you sound in relation to it. Right, like I rake, you know, and like yeah. you are a little bit too fast, the whole thing comes apart. You know, like I don't rake for everything, but for certain things I'll, I'll do that. And I've, it's one of those things where it's like really got to be aware of like how fast every little movement is. If you're doing economy of movement, mm. uh, economy of motion type things. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, um, I'm a devil in the details type of player. Like, you know, like I, I really try to figure stuff out and yeah. I really try to figure out like, how to be economical with stuff, or I try to figure out like how much exertion I have to have to make something jump out a certain way. Mm. Um, I, I'll say for me, like my own personal interests in recording have made me a much better bass player because I can see, you know, I can listen back to something and hear how clear it is or like where I might need to emphasize stuff. Or if I don't like how it's sitting, I can like figure out where I need to lean back. Mm. I don't know. So I think like when I'm teaching, especially if it's people who are trying to work on, like I get people that they, you know, it, it comes in this form. I want to work on my groove or I want to work on my time field. And so it's like oftentimes trying to diagnose where the improvement might need to occur. Mm -hmm. um, I don't want to say, I don't like to say problem because nothing's really a problem. You know, if you lock your keys out of your car, that's a problem. But like if you, you know, if you're, if you're just not able to like make something feel a certain way, like that's, it's not a problem. It's just a challenge that hasn't been overcome yet. So I try to think about like what the student is playing. And I, you know, a lot of times it's like one tiny thing can make the difference. It's like, okay, you're not letting this note ring long enough. This is the note you need to lean into, not the downbeat, mm. even though the downbeat feels like it's the most important thing. It's really it's really beat two. That's where the weight of that groove is. So it's like, you know, kind of getting people to think about stuff. But it, it's weird because I think 
I'm a more neurotic musician than some. Hmm. Like I'll listen to shit and just be really crit. Like, you know, like I wouldn't say that, like I've never worked with Donald Fagan. So I couldn't tell you if it was like being Steely Dan, but I'll listen back to stuff and really pay attention to like, do I sound like I'm rushing there? Or does that sound like a, like a breath, you know, okay. you know, and like, I have to like call myself out when I'm being too obsessive, but you know how in logic you can just run takes. Yeah. You can have like a stack. <clears throat> what I tend to do rather than retake stuff and obsess, I'll let myself do two passes and I can sort of see if it's like a, just a momentary thing or if it's like a, Oh, do I need to like work on this? So it feels better. You know, sure. Um, I get sure. called sometimes to play crazy shit, man. <laughs> that's the problem like when you put out technical stuff all of a sudden people want you to play technical stuff and then it's like <laughs> and so you, you just got the logic marker set up like two bars at a time <laughs> those two <Yeah>. bars <laughs> I've done one record like that um, and like I didn't feel bad because I'm pretty sure that's how everyone else recorded that record but yeah. um, ideally you don't want it to be like that unless there's a good reason to like you're changing sounds yeah sure. And you want to make sure that it's a clean thing or maybe you have a different, cause I like I've done recordings, right. Where, where I'll use um, different effects, but they're not used in tandem. So it's like, okay, I want it okay. it's just gonna have to be done like this. Yeah. There's, there's no other logistical way, but it makes the most sense cause it's going to sound the best in the end. So yeah. U using, using the studio tools to the fullest. Yeah. I mean, there's a couple other tricks I'll use too, which, I think sound cool. It depends on what it is, you know, like I'll use flex time. There was a baseline. I just played on someone's record where they wanted it to be like a robotic 16th note thing. Like they didn't want it to really percolate like a Jocko baseline or like a power power. They wanted it to be like kind of like an arpeggiator. Right. So I could play it and I could come really close to that sound without anything. But I was like, let's put flex time on it and quantize it and see what it sounds like. Cause it's all 16th and it sounded cool. Yeah. So I kept it in there, man. And I didn't feel bad. Like, you know, no I way. can nail it live, but that's an effect that I couldn't, no one can achieve on their own, but it sounded, you know, it still sounded like bass guitar. It still had like the, the transients that bass guitar can only create because, you know, you're dealing with strings and vibrations and yep. the attack between the different sizes of string. See how obsessive I am? Like that's, <laughs> It can really get it. It can really become a thing where you're you're deep in the weeds. But and what 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 um what what bases are you using these days? Well, okay, I have a I have my um, signature Brubaker, which is sort of like a jazz bass um, on steroids, I guess. Like they always call it like some kind of like a altered version of something like on steroids, but but it it's essentially like a five string version of my. Um, Getty Lee jazz bass that I modded. Uh, like my, my great friend who is no longer with us, Tim Clunan from Callow Hill basses. Mm -hmm. He modded my Getty Lee jazz bass that he put in. Um, well, originally I had Nordstrands in there, but then I put some Aguilar super singles in there. And then he ended up putting on like better tuners and like a hip shot. And so that's probably my main four string bass. Yep. And I also have like another jazz bass that's like got 60s spacing. Um, that that Getty Lee's the one in the True Fire video. But then I have I have a, um, another jazz bass that's in that Scott's Bass Lessons course I've done. 
Right. Um, that bass is killer. God, I love that bass. My friend, it belonged to my friend. And um, he was he was living in Brooklyn, and I was living in Brooklyn, and one night we were going to hang and get dinner. He was like, man, I got this jazz bass. Check it out. And I, you know, I was like, I was sitting on his couch playing it. I was like, if you ever want to get rid of this thing, let me know, because this bass has some mojo in it. I don't know why mm-hmm. this 2012 Fender American Standard J bass is this killing, but it is. And that was a good year for those. But um, through some circumstances, I ended up getting that bass. Hmm. So I've been using that, and that bass is cool. I have a P bass, which um, is one of those American vintage reissues, but it came out in the 90s. So it's now it's a double vintage bass because it's supposed to be a 60s bass, but I think it came out like in 94. So it's like, yep. I don't know if – there's a phrase for that, but it's like a double vintage. <laughs> so that bass is cool, man. I love I playing it. I think the phrase is just good marketing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, it's strange. Like I never really fancied myself. It's not that I really thought about not playing one, but the P bass is one of those things. Like it just sort of crept in there, man. Like happens to everybody. I, yeah. And I really like it when it's the right bass. There's nothing better, you know? Um, but then I also have a Strandberg Bowden, which I, I helped them with their promo stuff when it was released. And, and um, I got to beta test the, um, the prototype because Carrie Nordstrand is a buddy of mine. And he was, it was like the November, it was like a couple months before we shot the thing. But he was like, he's like, you'd be the right guy to like demo this thing because this is sort of up your alley. He's like, you want to like check it out and decide? I'm like, yeah. So that base is ridiculous. It's, it's like playable art as far as I'm concerned. Like it's yeah. like this chamber thing. Like, I don't know if you know about the, the, the Enduro neck that Strandberg no. invented, but it's like this ergonomic thing that kind of looks like a, someone's geometry project, but it, it's very comfortable to play. And right. dude, honestly, I, I can play so much crazy stuff on that bass. It's unreal. <laughs> so um, yeah, you, you have to kind of keep it, keep it in the corner under lock and key. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I'll hurt myself if I try to play that stuff on other instruments. Um, then I have a Lakeland 5502 with Nordstrands. I love that bass, man. That, that thing one is with so- the, like the music man, the humbucker at the bridge and the single yep. oil. Yeah. I really think, man, like if you're doing sessions, um, that's, if you need like a wild card bass that you don't, and you don't have any five strings that sort of have that ability to sound like a music man or, Mm. A J, like it's really, I, I love that bass. Yeah, killer. Um, and I'm about to do something with Spectre. Like they're going to send me like one of their five strings to check out. I always love those basses, you know. And do you, because you do have, or you did have a Calo, some Calo Hill basses? Yeah, I do. I have um, an OBS yeah. 5, which Tim made for me. And uh, I got that from him in 2012. That's at my mom's house. Um, when Tim died, which is still kind of a hard thing to fathom, mm. um, I didn't really know what to do. Like, I, I don't want to not play it, but when I was moving out here, it's like, I don't know if I should insure this thing or mm-hmm. if it's like one of a kind. And it is one of a kind. Like that base, you know, however many of those he built, that's really the thing. Um, like, I don't really... I would never really assume the role of like a collector per se, but with that thing, because it's like if something happened to it, I feel really bad. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. So like much, I so much wrapped up in it, you know. In the moment when I was packing to move, I just was like, I'll leave it here for now. Um, but the next time I go east, and I don't know when that's going to be because I've been sort of staying put. I'm going to bring it back. Yeah. Or I'm going to make sure it's with me because I it, it that bass is phenomenal. It's mm. it's an amazing sounding instrument and it's meant to be played. Um, yeah. It's really, it's really, you know, I mean, there's basses now, like Jake Sarek makes amazing basses and he makes a great short scale five. Yeah. Um, like my buddy Evan, he's got one. I know uh, Kevin Scott's got one. I haven't tried Kevin's, but, but Evan's I've, I've played a bunch. Cause I like, tried, I haven't tried Kevin's five, but I tried his four. Yeah. It's, it's the thing, the thing that struck me was like, it's, it doesn't feel like a short scale in terms of the tension. No. Somehow it still has good string tension and it, it doesn't feel too dinky, but it just feels fun. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're really cool, man. I mean there's definitely um there's definitely something to be said for like a short scale bass like that, especially if it's got a B string. Because there is a way to get it to work. And Tim was the first one to do it, man. Like yeah. Tim Tim like I mean there's definitely people who are gonna like probably copy that shit. And I don't know that like Tim foresaw or would have even foreseen that now we're in this short scale. Short scales are kind of cool now. Short scale like, renaissance. <laughs> yeah. But I think there's, there's definitely, um, if you record with one, you can see why it works really well. Like it's, it's not hard to see because the way it works, like it changes where the fundamental is and it's very, it fills a track really nice. So yeah, yeah they're, they're cool. And then not to mention like, you can do like these impossible stretches that <laughs> can't do on other instruments if that's your thing. I don't know. And so you you were never drawn to the kind of you know the MTD Federa Ken Smith kind of side of things. Well, I had a Ken Smith in the '90s, and I didn't. For me, it wasn't the sound I was going for. Like I wanted it to be, but it just didn't. It didn't really do it for me. I think Ken makes amazing instruments. Um, Brubaker's actually helping him with his production now. And like, yeah. So I had a Kevin Brubaker. I had a Brubaker bass that was more like a modern instrument. I played that for like eight years. Okay. Um, so like the record I made with Fusinski called Keith Express, like that's pretty much the bass I use on there. Right. It was like a single cutaway. So I had my moment with it. Um, I think there was a point when I was really trying to figure out what I was doing on my own. I started playing four strings a lot mm. and I just kind of went back to a passive fender and I don't know why I felt like I had to do that, but it felt like a way to sort of reset and um, like just start from nothing and figure out what I want to do with instruments. Um, Cause I mean, up until that point, I don't think I really understood the relationship between say like a preamp, on a bass and then like the pickups and what I learned from like just talking to good builders like Kevin Brubaker or like uh, for a while Jimmy Coppola was in New York he moved out here but he laid a Coppola bases mm. um, it starts with having good pickups that sound good when they're passing right. and then if you want to put a preamp in there that enhances the mix yeah um, I think well, I, the I, things I love about about the the F bass is like well, that that's one of the older ones, so it's got F bass pickups and the F bass right. preamp in it. And when you have, it's a boost only preamp, so volume, yeah. volume, tone, bass, mid, treble. So when you don't have any of the 
the base mirror treble boosted and you switch between active and passive, it sounds exactly the same. Wow. So, so it's you know, like, like zeroed out, like kind of zeroed. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, there's no, there's no volume boost. There's no tonal change. It's exactly the same. So then once you start to do dial in those base mid treble frequencies, you're kind of yeah. enhancing what's the natural sound of the bass. Right. I love F basses, man. I think they're, they're such well-made instruments and like, you know, like I've played a couple that have blown my mind. Yeah. Like, and I've only played a couple, so they've all blown my mind as well. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. Like, I like MTV. I went to Mike's shop when I first moved to New York, and um, I asked, I mean, like, this is no slight because, he, you know, he's an artist and those things are beautiful. Yeah. But I asked him about artist pricing, and he was like, yeah, man, like, here's what it is. I was like, do you have starving artist pricing? Like, you know, it was like. <laughs> <laughs> do you have bass player prices? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I, but yeah, I love his bases too. I think they're, they're fantastic. Um, Roscoe bases are cool. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like I, I'm not really like a purist like that, but I think for me, one thing that was really eye opening. Um, one time I was at Aguilar, they have their headquarters in, in Soho and they have two places, but the main place at the time was in Soho. And Dave Boonshoft has like a, uh, I guess it was like a Joe Osborne five string. Mm. I remember I was playing it through one of their rigs and I was like, this is one of the best sounding basses I've ever played. And it really was. And it was passive. Mm. And, and it's just, you know, I don't know, man. I think that's where my head's at with, with a lot of stuff. Like, what does it sound like without any preamp? And then, okay, let's put a preamp in the mix, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think, like, I know there's some players that really like, they like the vintage thing. They want to, it's P bass only. And I've never really been that kind of player, but I think as someone that's really interested in music and I'm a fan of the records I love in terms of how they sound. Um, I think there's a case to be made for understanding why those bases work really well mm -hmm. and not feeling slighted if someone asks you to play one, because, mm -hmm. you know, Cause I think, I think that's the thing. It's like, they're, they're just tools at the end of the day. You know, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, um, so that's always been my ethos on, on instruments. It's like, I like the forward thinking stuff. Like that Strandberg bass I have is multi-scale. I can make a case and say that like, there's a reason why those things sound really good. Um, it's not the same scale length as the ding walls. Like, I think the, the B string is like 37 from like where you measure it from yep. the, the Strandberg is 35. It's like 35 to like 33 and a half, I think, mm -hmm. but every note has a, it breathes the right way and it just sounds so musical. Right. So I don't know, man, like I'm, I'm a fan of, I'm, I don't know, like I, if there's a way to use that and, and put that on a track and make it work, like I'm down to try, but I think I do like the simplicity of like the, the early bases and what that, what they do. And that's certainly informed the way I look at modern instruments. Like, cause I think really that's how you know that a really modern forward thinking instrument works because it's got some kind of direct line yeah. to like the past. Yeah. And I can feel that with the Strandberg, even though if you pick it up, it looks like this beautiful kind of, you know, like modern art piece, it really does. I mean, I'm not saying it, it's, it's not going to sound like you're not going to sound like Jamerson on it, but it does 
there's very intelligent design there and it makes sense as to why mm. they design it that way. And I, I like what it does. It's to me, it's a musical sound. So I dig it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. Um, I reckon we should maybe wrap it up there. It's been a couple of hours. Don't want to yeah, yeah. take up too much of your time, but if people want to, um, check out what you're doing, what you're up to, to want to get in touch with some lessons or whatever, where can people contact you and find you and, and, and access your art? First and foremost, uh, Instagram, um, which is at Steve Jenkins. Um, and then at, I have at, a website. At bass player. <laughs> what? At averagebassplayer.com. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I mean, I'm really glad I was able to get Instagram with just my name. There's a couple Steve Jenkinses in the world. Yeah. And it hasn't always been an easy, uh, easy road, man. Like well, I, my, my, um, my partner's name's surname's Jenkins. So I said, oh, I'm interviewing this baseball coach, Steve Jenkins. And she went, Oh, my uncle. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. Um, so then they can go to my website also, stevejenkinsbase.com. And that's got, that's sort of set up like it's a hub. So that'll lead people to, uh, I don't really have a link to Facebook, man. I'm sort of phasing out Facebook, but okay. I'm, I'm on Twitter. Bandcamp? I'm on Bandcamp. Yeah. Um, stevejenkins.bandcamp.com. Not Spotify. Uh, no, I'm on Spotify. Oh, you are? Yeah. I, um, those records have been out long enough. So I don't, I haven't really felt like it's a bad thing to have them there. Okay. Um, I haven't released anything new on Spotify. So I don't, I haven't really given it much thought as to like how, how I would do that. You know, um, I could see putting a song from a new record on there and just making the full record available someplace else, like just to play hardball. Like, I think that would make sense, but like, it's kind of like with movies, right? Like, yep. You have like direct, direct to video, where like you can you can watch a movie that's in the theater from home, but like it doesn't show up. You have to pay like full price for that, like fourteen bucks or whatever. Yeah. So like I think that's how I'm going to watch the new Bill and Ted movie when it comes out sure. next week. I'm gonna, it'll probably cost like twenty bucks. Whereas you know, which is what it, it eventually makes. <laughs> What's that? Which is pretty much what it costs to go to the cinema these days. Right. Right. Um, because that's how the film industry is like kind of staying afloat, I guess, like you're trying to make money where they can. But then, you know, eventually that movie ends up on Netflix or like Hulu or something. And, mm -hmm. um, yeah, I'm not a big fan of Spotify. Mm. I get it as a consumer and whatever I would say about it in a rant, everybody's already said, um, I think, you know, there's, it's a complicated thing because there's not, there's stuff that that guy said in that interview, like the, the thing I'm talking about, like how people need to make more music more frequently. Like, I don't think if we look at it and, and substitute content for the word music, he's not wrong, but most of the records that we like that really have stood the test of time are not things that necessarily have been made like one every couple of years, like maybe in the seventies where it was like a goal of a band to stay on the road. Mm -hmm. You know, like if you look at, like Kiss's early records, I think they put out like five records in three years, you know, like between like the first album and like Kiss Alive 1. Um, Van Halen, same thing. Like if you look like Van Halen 1 the Van Halen 2, the one, you know, like there, there was a pace that I think really complemented touring, but like if you look at records, I mean, like let's go the other extreme, like uh, Black Messiah. 
that took 14 years. Um, Chinese democracy? Right. Chinese <laughs> democracy. Um, that's a weird one, man. Yeah, it is. <laughs> do you like it or do you think it's more? It's, it's, it, it feels weird. It sounds weird. Sometimes I'm like, this is cool. Like there's some cool stuff. And then it, uh, it yeah, it's, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange album. Yeah. There's some good songs on it, but it's definitely, that's an album where you just don't know. I didn't know what to think about when I listened to it. Um, yeah. But I'll say that the other two albums like that, like the D'Angelo's Black Messiah, I really liked it. Yeah. I was cool at not being like voodoo. Like I felt like it, like there's a couple songs there I don't love, but most of it I really liked. And I felt like this is, I was actually listening to um, last week, I think, because I hadn't really checked it out properly. Then I heard a track on, on local radio. and I was like, I should really check out Black Messiah. And listening to it, I was like, do you know what? This makes me, it, it sounds like, this is probably going to get me a lot of hate mail, but it's it, to me, it felt like a bunch of Prince B-sides. But yeah. that's cool because I like Prince B-sides and... Yeah. If I could write a song that was worthy of being a Prince B-side, I'd be very happy. But that that was what I got from it. I had this kind of like garage, very Prince vibe. Yeah. I mean, I think that's not that's not the most controversial take on his music. <laughs> like there's there's people that were far more critical of it and yeah. you know, but I, I liked it. Like I, I felt like my, the only expectation I have is that it would just be like a cool record yeah. and and something I would listen to a few times and re-listen to it. And since it's been five, six years since it came out, like that's still something I listen to. But, um, you know, I really liked the last Tool record. I thought that mm -hmm. was great. Um, you know, uh, I don't know, man. Like I know the songs are long. It's definitely one of those things where like I would drive when it first came out and I would go someplace and I would think about how long it would take me to get there. And it's like, I can listen to two songs <laughs> off this album. And then I, and I'll know it's almost time for me to check my directions on, on Google Maps. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I think, you know, there, there's a timelessness to albums that are really important that I don't know that like deadlines really make sense. But I think like if people are going to be critical of anything that guy says, maybe it's kind of not realizing that, but everybody's making stuff even if they're not albums, you know, like everybody's got things they're working on and doing. And to that end, I think he's right. You know, maybe we should look at Spotify more as a social media platform yeah. in terms of putting up demos, putting up little skits and ideas and stuff, as opposed to it being more of a shop window. It could be more of a, uh, a chance for people to, you know, see the journey. Right. I, it's, it's hard because, most things that we use are multi-purpose now, you mm -hmm. know, like the computer, for example, like to me, the computer, this might get me some hate mail. That's as important to my existence as a musician as my basis. I think that's, I love yeah, making absolutely. Stuff. Yeah. You know, like I love making stuff. I like creating and it, it's part of it for me. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, um, like, I recently got a new computer in the last year. Like I got a new like 2019 iMac. My iMac of 10 years died. And, and um, 
I was sad about it, man. Like, <laughs> That's pretty good mileage for technology. Yeah. I had, to, I had to swap out the hard drive at one point, and I just put like an, a super uh, a, a solid-state drive in there. Um, but I was legit sad when it was done. Like, it'll still power up, and I can still grab stuff off it really quickly, but the screen doesn't stay lit. There's something with, like, I don't know. It, it, yep. It's not worth fixing. It was, like, time. But I felt feelings, man. I was like, this is sad. Like, this is my, you know, this is, like, the one constant I had in my life besides bases. And, you know, like, there was these three different girlfriends I had when I had this computer. You know what I mean? Like, but also, like, the records I made on it and the stuff I played on. So, <laughs> you got, so you got like, you got, like, you know, like, holiday snaps with you and your iMac and right. for dinner and stuff. Right. <laughs> I miss you, man. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but it, but if you think about all the stuff that we use, like, these are all things that their purpose is not just one thing, you mm-hmm. know? Like, the purpose of Instagram could be a lot of things, yeah. you know? Um, the purpose of, like, the phone even, you know? Yeah, like, to, to collect personal data and sell it to people. <laughs> exactly, it's a data it's And a data collection. you and... <laughs> right, yeah. But, but uh, you know, like, to sort of, like, look at it from a lighter standpoint, I remember the first time I actually used it as a phone, I was like, man, this thing sounds amazing. Like, <laughs> you know, like, the actual sound of the microphones and the... Yep. Yeah, I don't know. So, I, I don't really know exactly like what to say about the streaming model and like what people how they view it but i know that like part of our jobs really isn't to like assess business but i I don't i don't know if there's like a great way to look at like how to put stuff out and use it and benefit from it Mm. because it seems like the one thing that was pretty useful nobody can do right now like Mm. you could always look and see who's listening to what you're doing and like track where they live and you know I, I was reading about someone that routed a tour that way like they could see who's yeah. listening to their stuff and but since that's not going on right now yeah you know, so yeah man but uh no i'm not I'm, I'm on spotify and then i'm talking about instagram Bandcamp. i'm on twitter that's user beware because that's usually where i put all my political stuff and uh just you know, it's not that crazy, but yep. political stuff or like I'm I'm it's usually late late at night and I'm stoned and just <laughs> nonsense. Just trying material out, you know. Awesome. Um thanks for taking the time to to do this chat, man. It's been it's been really, really interesting. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. Good to talk. Good to finally meet in person. Or yeah. sort of in person. Yeah, well, virtual person. No, it's it's been cool. So um Best of luck riding out this this wave of of madness. Um, Thanks, man. Keep creating. I look forward to. I'm, I'm sure there must be an album coming out soon. Well, there's an album. I don't know when it's going to come out. I'm, I'm like writing right now and stuff. Yeah. But yeah, hopefully, you know, everyone will get to travel again and we can do it in person and have one of those jams like on some of the other videos yeah. I've seen. Yep that 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 would be awesome, man. Cool. Well, thanks for having me, man. All right. Take care, Steve. Thanks. Take care. Have a good one.